Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Lieutenant Jadzia Dax and Dr. Julian Bashir, I'd like you to meet Harmon Bokai, a baseball player from the London Kings who's been dead for 200 years. Don't look at me. I can't figure it out either. And a medieval fairy tale character named Rumpelstiltskin. Oh, fine. Now everyone knows my name. Until today, he only existed in storybooks. I have been waiting 10 years to talk about this book. Actually, I've been waiting 10 years to read this book by David Mack that takes place in the Kelvin universe, which back then, when Star Trek 09 came out, I didn't know to call it, well, it's the Kelvin timeline, I should say. I didn't know to call it that because that didn't, we didn't start calling that till later. It was just the J.J. Abrams movies or the J.J. universe or whatever. But here we are. Mm-hmm. Welcome everyone to Positively Trek. We are going to talk about the new Star Trek novel, More Beautiful Than Death, with David Mack, who's in the house. And of course, Dan is in the house right now. Dan, how are you doing? Hey, Bruce, doing well, excited to talk about this novel. And yeah, like you, 10 years I've been waiting for this. And uh, I want to say I was looking on Goodreads just a few minutes ago, and it said lists that this book is on, and it said books we cannot wait for in 2010. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I mentioned, David Mack, the author is on. David, I'm sure you've been waiting a long time hoping this would happen. Actually, I gave up hope that this would happen quite some time ago. The moment I was told that my book and three others that had been commissioned in the, uh, in the sort of cinematic universe were all being pulled at the same time and that it was a big political uh, mess involving multiple parties, I thought, well, that's it. This book will never see daylight. But the pain of that was mitigated by the fact that we were all paid. This is one of the few instances in the history of the entertainment industry where the writers are not the ones who got screwed over. We actually all got compensated in full for our work. As it turns out, two of the four books ended up being repurposed by their authors and became other Star Trek books. And uh, the remaining two, mine and Ellen Dean Foster's, were selected last year when I guess the political climate uh, between the various power players had changed and they needed to fill some spaces in the schedule. And they said, well, let's, let's resurrect these books. And the decision was made and nobody objected. And so these books that had been indefinitely postponed were suddenly rescheduled. And, you know, I, I had, by that point, it had been years since I had thought about the book, I thought, well, this book will never see the light of day. I had taken it off my website. I still listed it on my bibliography as a book I had written and been paid for, but I had a little asterisk next to it and a little notation that said unpublished. And then suddenly it's being published. So I had to re, you know, revise it and get it out there. And it kind of took me by surprise, but it wasn't like I spent 10 years thinking maybe this will be the year they'll pull it out of mothballs. Maybe this will be the year. I just, I just simply let it go. I was like, nah, it's dead. Move on to the next project. Move forward. Okay. So I've never written a novel. I've never spent time on that. I can't imagine spending so much time on that. And then it never sees the light of day. Did it bother you or just, you're like, well, it was a job. I did the job. I got paid. If no one reads it, fine. Well, it wasn't so much. If no one reads it fine, there's a measure of disappointment. I put a lot of effort into it. I tried to write a story that would feel correct for this cinematic version of Star Trek as opposed to the original series, let's say. And I thought that people who enjoyed the J.J. Abrams films and its interpretation of the Star Trek universe and the Star Trek characters would enjoy this book. I thought that you know this was something I had crafted so that it would feel of a piece with that universe. It would have the right dialogue. It would have the right tempo, the right kind of uh, loose and fast approach to techno babble 
Um, you know, the idea of just run and shoot offense and get it done. So there was a bit of disappointment. Uh, I thought, you know, I really thought people were going to enjoy this. And uh, when you put that much work into something, you do want it to get out there and you do want to see how people react to it. On the other hand, I'd have been a lot more upset had I not been paid. But I was paid. I was compensated in full. I received everything I was promised in my contract. And I really had no basis for complaint, uh, aside from the fact that <laughs> they shelved the book. But that happens. It's the sort of thing that happens to most writers, especially media tie-in writers, usually at least once in your career. Something like that will happen. A project you're working on, suddenly the project, uh, the you know, the plug gets pulled on it and there's no explanation and all the work you've done up to that point just goes into the abyss. I've had projects where, you know, no others where I've gotten as far as, say, having a whole novel written and edited and in production with a cover before it got pulled. But I've had some where we've done extensive work in the planning and the outlining phase. Uh, and then suddenly someone just says, well, they decided not to go forward and we're not doing the book. I've had that happen. I've had plenty of friends to whom that has happened. It's just one of those hazards of the business. I think I remember uh, months ago we had talked to you about this book coming out and you had to make at least one adjustment to it. There was one. There was really only one case where a line of dialogue near the beginning of Star Trek Into Darkness contradicted a few of the facts on the ground in the novel. And in order to make my novel align with uh, this, this canonical line of dialogue spoken by James Kirk in uh, Into Darkness, I had to go through and make some tweaks. I had to alter the outcomes of a few scenes, change a few sentences here and there. I didn't have to do a radical rewrite. I didn't have to radically alter the plot. I didn't have to change the overall ending of the story, the character relationships, the, the major arcs are all still there. I just had to amend a few minor details, but overall it, uh, it was a pretty easy adjustment compared to some others I've had to do over the years. I'm, I'm curious, were, were the writers, were you and the other writers told anything specifically about the delay or just that it was kind of not going to be published? All we were really told was that there were some disagreements behind the scenes between various parties at Simon and Schuster, at CBS, at Bad Robot. There was a desire at that time to have all of the tie-in materials that were related to the Bad Robot version of Star Trek come under much closer supervision and control at Bad Robot. And the problem was is that they don't really have the skill set or the time or the manpower to deal with vetting novels. Novels are a complex set of beasts. They're long. There's lots of words. It takes a lot of attention. You actually have to pay attention. There's no pretty pictures. It's not like vetting a comic book. It, it's hard. You actually, you know, have to read. And they weren't really in the mood to deal with that. And even more than that, there was the problem that novels are big, complicated beasts with lots of moving parts. And there was a concern that since they didn't know yet in 2010 what they were going to do for the next movie, they didn't want us crafting a whole bunch of spin-off stories in the tie-in books. And then suddenly finding out that, you know, they decide to do something in Into Darkness that wildly contradicts all of the tie-ins that have just been released, or even worse they'd go to do a movie and they find out that one of the tie-ins has just done the story they intend to do in the movie. This was not a situation they wanted to find themselves in. They didn't want to look like they were out of step and not paying attention to their tie-ins, but they also just didn't have the time to deal with running herd on novels, which are too big, too complex, and just too time consuming for them. But they also didn't want us stepping on story material that they might want to use. And that's a real risk because when you are working in a shared story universe and in a situation like this where they've sort of rebooted the universe and they are trying to figure out where to go next 
and a bunch of tie-in writers are also saying, well, working from the same set of starting conditions that exist at the end of the first movie, where do you go next? There's a very high risk that somebody might choose to go in the same direction or do something really similar. And they were like, we cannot have that. We cannot be that out of step with our tie-ins. And we certainly cannot risk having our next move be trumped by our tie-ins. And so the decision was made. It's just safer to keep the uh, Kelvin tie-ins to comic books, which one of our people writes, and therefore we can ride herd because they're really very short stories in a graphical format. Much easier to comprehend, pitch, uh, much easier to ride herd on the story content. And so we were told, look, you know, it's just it's too big of a hassle. Um, so we're just not going to do the books for a while, at least not on the Kelvin side. We're going to let them have their universe to themselves until they tell us it's okay for us to do some stories. And part of, I think, what changed on the ground, aside from the fact that there were you know spaces in the schedule that needed to be filled and there were books that were paid for sitting on the shelf, was the fact that you know by this point where they decided to resurrect my book and Alan's book, well, they released Star Trek Beyond. You know, they had Into Darkness, they had Beyond. They were now several years past that first Star Trek film. And Alan and I had both written books that were set squarely within a few months of that first film. And we hadn't really contradicted anything that they did in Into Darkness or Beyond. And we were able to just drop them in like continuing voyages. And they said, all right. You know, it's highly unlikely that the film team is going to go back and do a retrofill between movies one and two. It's almost unheard of. So you guys are clear to go. And I think that that was really just a matter of, you know, time passed and the sense of anxiety about will we step on their toes? Will they step on ours? Once they had a few movies in the can, that really just wasn't a problem anymore. I was afraid you were going to say they were okay with releasing the novels now because they're really not going to do any more movies. So there's no <laughs> jeopardy in doing this. Well, I wouldn't know anything about that. I mean, as far as I know, they are still trying to figure out how to do another one. They want to do more. There's just movies are hard. There's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of politics involved. There are many conflicting schedules on the part of both writers, directors, but also the stars who are, working on multiple overlapping projects, getting all of the key players to be available during the same period of time, and then being able to have a quality production team and a director ready in the same span of time, and then be able to find a writer who has an idea worth doing, who can have a script ready in time. Frankly, it's a miracle that any movie ever gets made at all. Yeah. So they haven't called you and said, write the script, David? No, but I really <laughs> wish they would. I have tweeted Very many good. a time... You know, if you're having trouble with the movie franchise, I'm right here. <laughs> they have not taken me up on my offer as of yet. Oh, okay. So after 10 years, uh, the book does finally get published, which I, I think in and of itself is fairly rare. Like, I, I don't think I've heard of something like, like there are a bunch, if you look in the history of Star Trek novels, there's a lot of Star Trek novels that have been, you know, solicited and written that never saw the light of day is a this, few, yeah. is this pretty rare? This is exceptionally rare to the, to the best of my knowledge. I cannot remember ever hearing of another star Trek novel that was solicited, written, edited, laid out, had a cover was ready to go out, you know, in a catalog for solicitation and got pulled and then got published finally with minimal change 10 years later, I, I don't know that I've ever heard of anything even remotely similar. I, I know of other Trek novels that have been pulled for various reasons and as a consequence never were published, at least not to this day. I don't think that they're ever going to see the live day. I, am, uh, I think the original version of Probe by Margaret Wander, uh, Margaret uh, Wander Bonanno comes to mind. Uh, we just had her on our last episode. Hmm. Did she talk about that? Yeah, we did briefly talk through that, yeah. But she said go to her website to read the full story. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, 
but I mean, I think it's, it's very rare. So it's, it's an extremely unusual situation I found myself in when they told me that after 10 years, they were suddenly going to release this book. One of the reasons why I was glad that it had to come back to me for at least minor updates and revisions for continuity reasons is that I said, you know, I said to myself, I haven't seen this manuscript in a decade. The way that I write now has changed. It has evolved, at least in some ways, from how I used to write a decade ago. At least, God, I hope it has. And I really would just like another pass at this manuscript to clean it up. And I'm very glad that I had that opportunity, even though I know they didn't want me cutting any words off of it, because originally it had been written for the mass market paperback format, which is a, you know, the smaller uh, size books. And I'd written it to be, you know, a relatively fast, short book. Uh, it's only about 72,000 words. It wasn't supposed to be a long, uh, heavy, deep, epic story. It's supposed to be light, fast, fun, hit, you know, it's supposed to feel like the movie, uh, just a light, fast, entertaining romp. You get in, you get out. There's some fisticuffs, there's some arguments, there's uh, some intimations of intimacy, uh, there's some you know, nifty epithets thrown around, there's a bunch of techno babble that doesn't really make sense, uh, and then something blows up and we're out. And, but I still wanted the sentence-by-sentence sentence execution of that to be good. So I had to go through and revise it sentence-by-sentence, sentence, uh, particularly with regard to how I handled dialogue, to how I handled certain transitions, just to bring it up to my standard of where I am today and what I like my books to feel like today. So I'm, I'm glad I had that opportunity. But I got to say, it was weird to go back uh, and do an editing pass on a manuscript that I hadn't seen in 10 years. It almost felt like editing another writer's work. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Seeing something that you haven't looked at for that long. I I, that's kind of uh, kind of unique and, and really cool that you got that opportunity to go back over it as well. Yeah, and especially for a book that you approached in a different way, because you're saying it's not like your other books. You're trying to make it fit with the movie, which would be different than trying to fit in with the original series in those movies. So it, I guess, I guess you, know, you were probably hearing these actors in your head when you're writing it compared to William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, for example. Exactly. I mean, that was the real challenge was making sure that this book felt like an extension of that cinematic universe and not the original series. First of all, I concocted a story uh, for the book, which could only work in the cinematic universe. It depended upon events that were shown in the first movie as key setup for the events that occur in the book without that setup without that movie as the precursor, you couldn't have this book. So this book could not just have the serial numbers filed off pocket. Uh, Simon and Schuster didn't have the option of simply saying, well, we'll just repurpose it as an original series novel and put it out in 2011 and be done with it. It didn't work. You couldn't do that. It was so completely uh, attuned to its universe that there was no way to just file off the serial numbers. And particularly with regard to the characters, uh, Kirk is far more of a hothead. He's far, far more likely to get into a shouting match with somebody on the bridge than Kirk in TOS. Uh, he's more likely to mouth off to someone like Sarek. He's, he's a sarcastic rebel, as played by Chris Pine, as opposed to the original series version of Kirk, who was very much a dutiful, by-the-book officer, a guy who his friends described as, you know, in his academy years, he was a stack of books with legs. Uh, this is the kind of guy who in the original series put his friend Finney on report and, uh, you know, or was it, yeah, put his friend uh, Finney on report and basically screwed up his career, you know, got him reprimanded and yada, yada, yada. This is a very different guy. I mean, in the original series, teenage Jim Kirk lived on Tarsus four lived through the reign of Kodos the Executioner, survived a colonial genocide, and probably came away with a well-earned skepticism about autocracy, a skepticism of people who revere power, but also probably a healthy regard for the merciful use of power and why it's important. 
as opposed to the movie version of Jim Kirk in the Bad Robot films, who has instead grown up on Earth, probably never lived through the Kodos, uh, the execution or massacre on Tarsus Four. This is the kind of kid who, you know, flings a car into a gorge, you know, into a quarry. Uh, he's starting bar fights. He has to be uh, kind of browbeaten into, you know, uh, uh, joining Starfleet. These are not the same guy. They're not the same person, not by a country mile. So if you're going to write the cinematic version, the bad robot version of Kirk, you've got to know he's had a completely different life. He has a totally different view toward authority, a totally different, different relationship with hierarchical power structures. He's got definite daddy issues. Uh, he's got all sorts of issues with his older brother, which uh, are going to replay themselves with Spock. Spock is clearly serving as some sort of weird proxy for his older brother. Uh, and then you've got Spock, who's also lived a very different life in the movies from you know Spock and TOS. This Spock doesn't have the long years of service and then coming to meet Jim Kirk as an equal. He's meeting Jim Kirk as a subordinate who somehow gets promoted above him. He's also much more in touch with his human half. He's seen his home world get blown away. He's watched his mother die right in front of his eyes. This is going to be a Spock who from this moment forward is going to live a life far closer to his human half than his Vulcan half, or at the very least closer to his human half than the other Spock did. This is going to be a Spock who is going to struggle much more difficult. Uh, he's going to have a much more difficult time keeping his human half in check. So you got to keep all these things in mind. Uh, and all the characters to one degree or another have these variations uh, whereas in, in TOS, McCoy was sure gruff and a little grouchy, but he was also the kind, quiet, wise old country doctor. Whereas in the Abrams films, Bones is the cynical urban divorce doctor who is only going to the stars because he's got nothing left to lose. You've got Scotty, who was at least enough of a responsible officer, despite his drinking habit in TOS, that he could be third in command of the ship. But in the Bad Robot universe, he's a little bit off. This is a guy who spent too many years alone on Delta Vega and is weirder for the result. You know, is, is weirder for the time spent alone. Him and Keenzer, that's a weird dynamic they got going on. So you got to take <laughs> all these things into account. Different universe, different ships, different power structures, different history. Things did not happen. Maybe Kodos the Executioner never happened for all we know. But as a result, because you've got such a different starting set of circumstances and different backstories, the characters are completely different. Their outlooks are different. The way they talk is different. The way they relate to one another is different. And you've got to factor all of that in when you write in that universe. So, you know, it's, it's not just a matter of, oh, well, you could just do a TOS story. Um, but, you know, think of you know, Quinto and Pine's voices. No, I mean, like, to make sure I stayed rooted in the, you know, in the bad universe, uh, bad robot universe, I didn't listen to any TOS music while writing More Beautiful Than Death. I either listened to generic action movie soundtracks, like from other movie franchises, or I specifically listened to the 2009 Star Trek uh, soundtrack by Michael Giacchino. I listened to his music so that I could stay rooted in the tempo and the style and the mood of the bad robot cinematic cinematic universe, as opposed to the original series universe. I wanted to stay in that headspace, And in that respect, Giacchino's music was very helpful. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking a lot of setup of the book. We haven't started digging deep into the book yet, but I just want to say out there to listeners that are somewhat new to our style of interviewing authors of books, we will be getting into spoilers. We're going to talk about this book as if you've read it. So you might want to tune out in the next few minutes or go read it. Exactly. And then come back <laughs> and listen to the rest of this. So, and when you're saying about the different characterizations, because this is happening in a different universe, a different timeline, it also makes me wonder about Sarek because what I was surprised in this book is how there was 
almost this rift, these budding heads between Sarek and Kirk, where in a lot of times when I see stories that involve Sarek on the Enterprise, it's his relationship with Spock. So it's almost like Sarek is a slightly different person, at least in his relationships in, in terms uh, with his son Spock and Kirk. Well, of course, Sarek has changed. Sarek has had his homeworld blown away, just like Spock has. And Spock has lost his mother, and that's a pretty serious loss. But it's an even more serious loss for Sarek. As I have sort of learned recently in real life, unfortunately, uh, it is one thing for a son to lose his mother. It is a completely different thing for a man to lose his wife. Uh, my mom passed away at the end of April, and as hard as that's been, the real sort of education for me has been seeing how my dad, who is now alone, seeing how he has to process and deal with grief and this hole in his life. And I've realized that it hurts a lot more to lose your wife than it does to lose your mother. Losing your mother, you almost expect, you, you kind of have to know at some point that if the natural order plays out that as you get into the middle years of your life, you're probably going to have to say goodbye to your parents, but nothing in the world prepares you to lose the person you've gone through your life with. And that's what Sarek is dealing with. Sarek is processing not only the death of his wife and the death of his home world, uh, but he's now got this relationship with his son where he understands that his son is sort of following in his footsteps, uh, carrying on a romance with a human woman. But Sarek, because he has lost his wife, because he has lost Vulcan, because he is in this position of leadership, remember that Spock's family are like the Vulcan equivalent of the Kennedys. They are a political dynasty. They are considered wealthy. They are powerful. They are dynastic. And so for Spock, as the leading scion of his family, to not be visibly taking part in the repopulation of the Vulcan species, you know, in not taking a Vulcan mate, uh, not participating in Ponfar in the, in the, or in the marriage rituals or whatever you want to call it, because he is not visibly taking part, he is in a way sort of saying, well, that's just not my responsibility. What he cannot tell anybody for obvious reasons is because old Spock, an alternate universe version of him is here and is sort of carrying on that function in his stead and is performing that role on his behalf uh, with the Vulcan diaspora. Spock considers his obligation already fulfilled. The alternate version of him is already doing that. Therefore he feels free to go on with his life and do something else that matters to him. But this is a problem for Sarek. This is a political problem. This is a PR problem. This is an image problem. This is something that he's going to get heat for from other Vulcans. That's what's going on behind the scenes with Sarek. And the reason he's butting heads with Kirk is because Kirk has not yet learned how to properly talk to authority, especially when he disagrees with authority. This is a Kirk who if he feels challenged or if he feels he's not getting his way, he's going to come right at you. He's either going to defy you or he's going to challenge you. He's going to try and push you to do it his way, or he's going to try and get away with just doing it and letting the chips fall where they, you know, where they may. And you can suck it. And if you don't like it, well, take it up with Starfleet. He's got bigger things to do. That's how this Kirk does things. I mean, look at how he reacts and does things both in the first movie Look at how he does things in Into Darkness. This guy does not deal well with people telling him no. He does not deal well with people giving him orders. He just kind of follows his conscience, does what he does, and if you don't like it, that's too bad. He will go around you or he will go through you. You can either say, you can either get with the program or you can get run over. Those are your options with bad robot work. This is not the kind of Kirk who would grudgingly find a way to placate the ambassador in TOS, as he had to do many a time, even when the ambassadors were clearly stupid beyond belief and were making the dumbest mistakes. TOS Kirk swallowed his pride. 
followed his orders, did what they said until it became so obvious that the ambassador was either compromised, dead, or in mortal peril because of their decision. And then he would step in and he would get forgiveness later after he saved their life. But up until that moment, he would follow orders. That was TOS Kirk. That's not bad robot Kirk. These are not the same guy. They don't react the same way. Like somebody on the Trek BBS was going off saying, you know, I just can't believe that, you know, Kirk would get into a shouting match with uh, Sarek on the bridge of the Enterprise. Really? Did you not watch the first movie? <laughs> did you not watch Inner Darkness? Did, did you not watch these characters? That's exactly who this guy is. That's exactly what he would do. That's, in fact, exactly what he did. Watch the first movie. That's exactly what he did. So people who take me to task Mm -hmm. because this Kirk doesn't act like TOS Kirk, I just have to say, did you watch the movie? Because that's what this is. This is not TOS. Look at whose face is on the cover, pal. This is bad robot. This is a whole different ballgame. Well, this is also a younger Kirk, too. This take it, you know, that first movie takes place earlier. He hasn't had 14 years of experience. Exactly, right. Kirk and TOS, you know, they were impressed that he was made captain of the Enterprise at something like 35, 36 years old. That was incredible. To to, to land in the captain seat after only 14 years of active service out, out of the academy, that was unprecedented. And this is a guy who, you know, now we got to remember in Bad Robot, this Kirk has not had 14 years of service as a junior officer working his way up through the ranks. This is a guy who never had that moment on the Farragut where he saw 200 of his shipmates killed by the Dicoronium cloud creature and blames himself because he thought he didn't fire fast enough. This isn't that Kirk. This isn't the Kirk who served on all these other ships, who served with these other captains, who learned all these command lessons coming up through the ranks. This is not that guy. This is a guy who has, frankly, wound up in the captain's chair way before he had any business being there. There is no reason for Kirk to be a captain in the Bad Robot universe, but he is, and we have to deal with that. And I was surprised you didn't play off of that more. I mean, it's mentioned a little bit here and there in the book from Sarek, but I I almost expected Sarek to really kind of call him on that. You really aren't ready. You're too young. They promoted you too fast. And I almost expected some of the crew to question his command decisions too. Well, the crew isn't going to question him. Uh, There's a certain understanding in military life that you may not agree with who's been put in command, but if they have been put in command and they've got the bars or the stripes or whatever – you don't say out loud, the captain shouldn't be the captain. That's a one-way trip to the brig. You can get yourself court-martialed for saying things like that. Or at the very least, you can get yourself, you know, you can get your three-day pass revoked. You can get your shore leave revoked. You can get knocked down a couple of rates if you're an enlisted man. You don't say things like that. A diplomat, Sarek, Sarek could say that, but Sarek is a diplomat. He's not going to say that. He will couch his reservations in a logical argument regarding Kirk's decision, regarding the logic of the decision itself. He won't make it an ad hominem attack. That's not what Sarek will do. Sarek will criticize the action, not the person. Speaking of Sarek, uh, when I was first started reading this novel, I was having kind of a difficult time trying to picture the Kelvin timeline, Sarek, Ben Cross. So I actually loaded up Star Trek 2009 and watched a bit of it. And and for one thing, that incredible scene between him and Spock in the transporter room where he says, I married your mother because I loved her, uh, really kind of got me in the head of, of picturing him while I was reading this. And, you know, I'm really glad I did given uh, the news that, you know, Ben Cross passed away just yesterday as as we're recording this. That was just a crazy coincidence that this book kind of happened to hit yeah, at that time. Yeah, with Ben Cross on the cover. Uh, it's very sad. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I feel like, you know, the my inability to kind of picture that at first was definitely a failing on my my part after having kind of revisited that performance and reading this. I, I feel like you captured him really well in this book. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So one of the aspects of this novel is uh, this kind of conflict that I see arise between 
uh, this kind of belief in the visions that are presented to Kirk uh, by this Cathakar mystic character. Gavitar Ren. Yeah. Gavitar Ren is that? Gavitar Ren. Gavitar Ren. Okay, perfect. Uh, and, and then on the other side, we have kind of the rationalism and science put forward by Spock, of course, but mm-hmm. McCoy as well. I thought it was an interesting choice that the novel kind of leaves open what the source of these visions by Kirk are. Uh, what was the kind of reason behind leaving this ambiguity there? Well, I mean, I didn't want to try and make too definitive an answer, especially when one is dealing with questions of faith, questions of mysticism. Um, Sometimes no explanation is better than an explanation. It's better simply to say that Kirk knows subjectively that he has had this experience. He doesn't deny the experience, but he can't rationally explain it. But maybe that's okay. Maybe he doesn't need the rational explanation. What's interesting to me was the notion as I dug into who is Jim Kirk, what drives him, what does he believe in, at heart, who is he, and what is it that's going to be his guiding star that's going to take him through the rest of his life, both as a Starfleet captain and just as a human being. And that was pretty much what I was searching for through the whole book, and I was finding it as I was writing the last scene. And it's that question of, you know, well, I don't know if I believe in alternate lives or all that mumbo jumbo. And McCoy says to him quite plainly, well, what do, what, what do you believe in, Jim? You know, uh, what is it you believe? And it takes a moment, but when Kirk sees, you know, a, a sweet kind of understated moment happening off to uh, the, you know, the aft of the bridge between Spock and Uhura, he realizes I believe in love, Bones. I believe in love. And I realized that that really is at the heart of Jim Kirk in both TOS and Bad Robot. What drives the man is that he believes in love. He believes in compassion. Uh, not just romantic love, but uh, agape love. You know, uh, love without condition. Uh, he believes in fraternal love. He, he believes in basically love of all kinds, as a prime mover, as a better reason to live and a better reason to act than hate or fear or pride or anything else. A Jim Kirk who believes that his actions should be rooted in love is going to be one who, even if he starts out in a radically different place, a rougher place, a meaner place than, let's say, original series Jim Kirk did, one can hope that over the course of their lives' journeys, they will eventually both come to a more compassionate uh, worldview by the end. It's interesting the more we're digging into this and, and what you are talking about earlier is just the fact that this is like a different universe of these characters and how they react. Because as you were talking about setting up the stories and the rhythm of it and making it feel like the movie, it really did feel that way. So a lot of what you're saying right here really stood out to me as feeling like the movies and it really felt like a missing chapter. When we read Alan Dean Foster's book and we interviewed him on literary treks about the unselling stars, to me, it felt more TOS, but fit in this universe where your book feels like it's, it fits into this universe. So that idea of what you just said about Kirk realizing love is the thing that relates both in both universes. It's almost like he's, finally discovering himself in this universe and becoming the man he was in the other. Yeah. Cause I think if you go through both the movies and go through the original series and look at the various conundrums that poor Jim Kirk has to confront the various uh, problems he finds himself faced with what inevitably saves the day with Kirk. If you look at it, a lot of the times what he does is he makes an appeal to love. He makes an appeal to compassion, to mercy, uh, to the better angels of our nature. Kirk sometimes succeeds through tactical fortitude or through sheer cleverness. But when he's dealing not with machines or not with combat, when he's dealing with other sentient beings, Kirk's best moments, his greatest moments of victory seem to come when he is able to appeal to the notion of love. 
when he is able to tap into a shared sense of humanity or compassion um, or just, you know, shared empathy with other sentient beings. These seem to be where Kirk finds his greatest moments. Um, I mean, going back to the first season, it's, you know, as simple a thing as looking at the episode arena, it's set up. You think that the key to Kirk's victory is going to be tactical expertise, stamina, cleverness, science, you know, working out the, the, the chemistry of the cannon and the physics of it. The real key to victory is the moment when he has the Gorn at his mercy and he doesn't take it. He puts down the rock and he says, I will not kill him. I will not do this for your amusement. If you, know, that's, if you mean to punish me as a result of that, so be it, but I will not kill him. This is not who I am. That's because Jim Kirk at his heart is about love. That's who he is. He is a decent, compassionate, loving human being. And I think that the journey for Jim Kirk in the bad, bad robot universe is going to be similar. He's younger. He hasn't been put to the test in the same way that his original series uh, counterpart has by the time they respectively reach the captain's chair, but he's going to have to learn those lessons the hard way. And it's critically important because at his heart, that's who Jim Kirk needs to be. He is the heart of compassion. Um, And then you've got sort of the, the, it's interesting. He sort of represents a balance between compassion and reason. Spock, at least in the original series was all reason and McCoy was all passion and Kirk was supposed to represent the balance between the two. He was the fulcrum in the friendship, in the great trio. Uh, whereas I think in the bad robot universe, um, you know, I think that that role is sort of more distributed. But I think that Spock is going to have to learn, just as original series Spock learned, logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. And I think he's farther along that journey than he realizes. The problem is he's so far to the emotional side of the spectrum that he's going to have to learn that emotion is a useful component for growth, but it is not necessarily the only component that perhaps reason is going to have to reassert himself. He's going to have to have a very different journey than original series Spock. Um, and Uhura is a completely different character in the Bad Robot universe. But, yeah, I mean, if Kirk is all about love, then Spock's going to have to relearn the value of reason. Um, and I think uh, it's gonna, it would be interesting if only that we knew whether or not those incarnations of the characters are going to have the screen time to make that journey I would be very keen to see it, but I, I don't know whether or not the actors would be up for making that many movies. Uh, I don't know if there would be any way to do a series concept. I think those actors would all cost way too much money to produce a weekly uh, or even you know episodic series at all. Um, so we may not ever get to see the long-term evolution of these you know of the bad robot characters, which is too bad. But I think that there are intriguing long-term possibilities for all of them uh, to see how they could grow, how they could change, and what that would mean in their universe as opposed to what it meant in the original series. Yeah, and if we never get those Mm -hmm. movies, then I hope we get future novels so you can fill in those blanks. One never knows. (laughs) It might happen. That would be nice. Excellent. Well, I I think that idea of Kirk uh, being believing in love and having compassion kind of rule what he does and how he approaches situations really leads to the main decision that he makes in this novel, which is to stay at this planet and save the people regardless of what Starfleet orders, regardless of what Sarek thinks. And the creatures that he's fighting you call the whites in this mm-hmm. novel mm-hmm. what was the kind of idea behind where where did was the genesis of these creatures this kind of big bad that they have to overcome here i just wanted something to be like a, a classic horror the idea of this mm. uh, almost like a spectral force like a black ghost that can come out of the walls uh something that would really tap into primal fears the idea of a shadow that comes alive and attacks. 
you know, I, I really wanted to get back to sort of, you know, just a really core level, uh, visceral type of uh, scary antagonist. I wanted something that we weren't going to be afraid to shoot. Um, <laughs> you know, that, uh, and I, one of the adjustments I had to make, and the reason I had to make it, uh, the touch of the whites, it turns out, is fatal to the cathecar. And it does pretty serious damage to humans and other humanoids, but it doesn't necessarily kill them. They might recover with medical treatment in time. And the reason I had to make that adjustment was the one line spoken by Jim Kirk in Star Trek Into Darkness that made me wince when he said, you know, in two years, three years, however long it's been, I haven't lost a single person under my command. Right. Not a single death <laughs> under my command. And I was like, oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I I remember you telling us that before. And when I got to the scene where those officers were touched and they almost died or a critical condition, I was like, they died originally. I know it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Originally, he suffered, you know, and Kirk was all sort of, you know, broken up, having, you know, this was going to be like a critical moment, first time losing numerous people under his command at one time. You know, losing several people at once. It was going to be a big moment. And then I had to pull all that out. Uh, I'm like, well, yeah, I can still have the the whites represent a potentially serious threat, having them be lethal to the cathecar, dangerous to us. So we don't get off scot-free for fighting them. But the more important thing is if we don't fight them, the cathecar die. And this really, in a way, makes the decision to stay and fight even more heroic. It's we could walk away. This is not our fight. But if we do walk away, these people die. We can mm-hmm. take the damage. We're going to stand here. and We will stand between them and harm. That's the hero's choice. I don't have to stay. I've got carte blanche. I've got, in fact, I have orders to leave. You know, I can point to the orders and say, well, I had to leave. I was under orders. Jim Kirk says, I won't turn my back on people in danger. These people have asked for my help. I'm not leaving until I've done something to, you know, done something to help them until I can actually show that I've helped them. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, And he has to like, you know, make all sorts of excuses and say, well, we're going to creatively interpret the Admiral's orders. He said, you know, as soon as possible. Well, technically it's not possible for us to leave yet because I say it isn't. So we're not. And there we go. Um, But yeah, originally I had, uh, you know, just, I, I just wanted to get back to just a classic, creature like you know, something like you know the aliens in you know in aliens where you know you just you have a faceless enemy that you just have to fight with which you cannot reason you cannot bargain there's no talking there's no bribing uh, it's not a matter of what do they want it's how do we get them to stop eating us yeah and the other aspect of this book that i really like is spock's storyline or should i say linnell's storyline with Sarek because Mm -hmm. she's on the ship with Sarek. uh they're on this mission together and you know there's something going on there and she keeps kind of has her own will of doing things and she's getting her catrick arc and bringing it with her to you know, just Sarek when they're together because she needs it. She's protecting it and the ship is getting hit and it's so important to her. I'm kind of dancing around it right now, but. Well, we've already warned people that there are going to be. I know, but I don't know. I'm just kind (laughs) of building up to it, but the reveal. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and say, believe me, if I could have found a way to get the whole book out of that storyline, I probably would have done it, but. The problem is, is that that's enough storyline for an episode of television. It's not enough storyline to fill a novel. Oh. So I eventually realized I loved it, but it had to be the B story. It wasn't big enough to be the A story. But in a way, it works because you've got this big sort of looming threat down on the planet that we're dealing with. And as our crew is all caught up in the middle of dealing with big, harrowing A-level threat, B-level threat is going on right under their nose, and they don't even realize it's coming until it sucker punches. Well, in the very start of the book, we see that B-level threat. It's teased to us. Mm -hmm. Indeed, and I've actually teased it in some of the uh, advertising for the book. Spock, the opening of the book is Spock bearing witness to his own murder. Yeah, and I I do want to comment on some of that 
teasing that you did in social media as well. I thought that was really great with the little uh, quotes from the book and stuff that really made me curious as to what this was all about. <laughs> I got that idea from John Jackson Miller. He did that for his book, Die Standing, uh, his Star Trek Discovery novel. And I think he said he had learned that technique actually from somebody at the Del Rey marketing department when they did it, I think for maybe a Star Wars book he had written. And he had found it to be an intriguing uh, marketing device. So he picked it up from them, and I saw how well he put it to use. And fortunately, I saw it in the nick of time to appropriate it right when I needed to start my uh, advertising campaign for both More Beautiful Than Death and my original novel, The Shadow Commission, which, as it turns out, was published on the same day as More Beautiful Than Death by a different Mm -hmm. publisher. So I did the same sort of campaign for both books. So yeah, two David Mack books at the same time, and yet there's another David Mack author out there that's not related to those books. It's a weird thing. Oh, there's there's more than one. There's also there, there's so many David Macks were legion at this point. It's it's really <laughs> quite ridiculous. So let's get into this whole idea about Linnell is actually depraying. So tell us how you came up with that idea. Well, it, it was uh, shortly after seeing the first movie and realizing what the destruction of Vulcan would mean, the Vulcan diaspora, the, you know, the, the few remaining survivors, those who were not lost when the homeworld was destroyed, either because they were off-world, they were serving on starships, they were living abroad, whatever. The few who remain, or the few who are able to escape, what does their new status as an endangered species mean to them? And I realized that part of what was possibly going to be interesting about the bad robot universe going forward was going to see how it reinterpreted say key seminal episodes of the original series, but taken through the filter of this new universe with its new history and different conditions. And the first one I sort of hit upon was the season two opener, Amok Time. And I'm looking at that thinking about, okay, to Pring, Stan, you've got Ponfar, you've got Vulcan marriage rituals, you've got Tepring, who basically, it was all about Tepring, Amok Time was all about Tepring betraying Spock because she really wanted Stan. That was the whole thing. She set up the whole stupid mess because she figured no matter how it worked out, she would get Stan. Well, I'm thinking, what if Stan died because of the whole mess Uh, with the planet being destroyed, and uh, that forces her to try and salvage his Katra and a Katric arc, Uh, because we don't really know much about T'Pring. We know that she was from a family as prominent as Spock's, uh, one that would be important enough that you get married off to the Vulcan equivalent of a Kennedy. So maybe I figured maybe she's someone, you know, uh, if you've got T'Pau, presiding over that wedding, over that whole uh, Faltor Pan thing, uh, Faltor Pan, the, uh, the Ponfar, the wedding, etc. If, if that's important enough for Tapau to get involved, maybe Tepring is an important figure in the religious community or the spiritual community. Maybe she has something to do with the, uh, the Katrick archive. Maybe she's part of the Hall of Ancient Thought. We don't know. So I I started ruminating on all that and realizing, okay, you know, what would be an interesting story? And I'm like, well, instead of her trying to goad Spock back into the ceremony so she can, you know, make him disqualify himself and she can be with Stan, I'm like, what if she has to kill Spock so she can resurrect Stan? What if this is about basically getting control of Spock and putting Stan's um, Katra into Spock so that she can basically have her betrothal, maintain her honor, but also have the lover she wants. It seemed to me like it was just a diabolical kind of thing to Pring would come up. With. I, I, I want to say one thing to that because my wife did not read this book. She doesn't read Star Trek novels, but she's familiar with all the characters and such. And I told her this part about how she wanted to put his Kat, Stan's Katra into Spock. And she's like, ooh, that's gross. <laughs> and so what you were just saying that, I just thought about <laughs> how my wife thought that was really gross, that she'd want her lover in a, this childhood mate in his body. And just that is kind of gross now that I think about it. Well, 
it is on the other hand if you think about the fact that you know she was betrothed to the guy and she's still got some sort of legal obligation or maybe thinks she does she's also not entirely in her right mind her logic is impaired she is dealing with trauma and grief just like pretty much every vulcan in the galaxy is right now and she's not handling it particularly well as evidenced by her maniacal homicidal plot to resurrect her dead lover <laughs> in the body of her betrothed so this should tell you she is not well wow. she's a different <laughs> one but was she well even in tos we don't really know even, well in tos she was well but she was diabolical yeah. There was something particularly calculating and cruel about the way that she went about manipulating Spock uh, to try and get him to disqualify himself, potentially in a way that would also ruin his life. Also, she could have the guy she would rather have. But it's interesting, you know, that Spock doesn't even really call her out on it so much, except to say to her, uh, actually, it's not even what he says to her. It's what he says to Stan. says, you know, she is yours. But you may soon find that having is not so pleasing a thing as wanting. It is not logical, but it is often true. And he leaves mm-hmm. them with this sort of ominous thing. Basically, what he's saying is, she's all yours now, pal. You will be <laughs> sorry because you just got what you asked for. Yep. Good luck. I always read a lot into Ston's look after that, too. Like, yeah, Ston he's was kind of like, like, huh. huh. <laughs> I just got myself engaged to a completely diabolical but oh no what have i done <laughs> uh yeah that part of the story i felt it really worked for me with uh because yeah like we had said to bring in the original series she's you know spock says that what she did was you know coldly logical but it, yeah it's also cruel calculating and you know really diabolical so you overlay the trauma of what she's gone through on top of that, you know, she's insane basically. And I I thought that really worked. She is certifiably insane in more beautiful than death. Well, one other thing that I kind of wanted to talk about, um, aside from um, the novel is of course, uh, lower decks has aired by the time this episode comes out. We'll have seen three episodes of it. Okay. Uh, you are credited as a consultant on Lower Decks, as well as the upcoming Nickelodeon series Prodigy. Correct. And I just wanted to know a little bit about what that experience was like, and how does it feel to see that finished product now? It's been an interesting process. Uh, working on the two, sh- the two shows has been very different. They have different workflows, different methods, uh, and different levels of need in terms of consultation. The level of input that each team uh, expects and requires uh, is very different. Um, So in that regard, you know, it's interesting. I am able to watch the finished episodes of say lower decks and see, Oh yeah, they took my note on that. Oh yeah. So they did change that. That's good to know. Uh, Or, Oh, I, you know, I I noted that and I guess they didn't agree because that's still there. And you know, there's, it's a situation where as a consultant, Uh, I don't actually have any authority. I can't compel changes. I can only make suggestions. Whether my suggestions are implemented or not, well, that's not up to me. Um, So I have found overall, though, the experience has been really interesting. It's been fun watching the way the two different teams have approached developing their shows, developing their characters, their long-term story arcs. and just generally been a pleasure being part of a team again, being able to contribute ideas, being able to make suggestions, be part of the give and take, the conversation. Um, it's been really interesting. And I'm especially interested in seeing how Prodigy is going to turn out. Now that I've seen how the Lower Decks has turned out and I've got a general sense of how it's shaping up and where they're going, the next big reveal is going to be Prodigy. We're going to see Mm. probably the first glimpses of Prodigy next year in early to mid-2021. I suspect it'll probably premiere late in 2021. They're going to need a lot of lead time, but that's because what they're doing is tremendously ambitious. And if it turns out half as well as what I've seen during the development phase, it's 
going to be gorgeous and mind blowing, and it's just going to be a terrific story. I think fans are going to just love the heck out of Prodigy. Oh, that's exciting. We we saw last week that they had hired their uh, director Ben Hibbon. Are you able to kind of tell us how far along they are approximately? Or I really probably shouldn't say anything uh, regarding the production process, um, just because I I'm not cleared to make you know statements about that. Any statement about where they are in their production process has to come from their production office. Gotcha. Fair enough. Well. You sound excited about it. I'm and, very uh, excited. I think that the the Hageman brothers, their writing team, their artists, their animators, they show tremendous vision, tremendous love and respect for Star Trek, uh, just in general. Um, I mean, as I've, I've said before on some other podcasts and to some other folks, I think that 50 years from now, when my generation is pretty much gone from the earth, there will be new Star Trek fans out there who will be the age I am now, and they're going to be Star Trek fans because when they were kids, there was Star Trek Prodigy. Star Trek Prodigy is why Star Trek will be alive and well after I am dead and gone. Oh, that's really cool. I don't know how I feel <laughs> about that. That that sounds good, but yeah, then we'll be dead and gone. I just I don't like thinking about that. Well, you know, I'm not going to have kids. You know, part of the reason you have kids, in theory, is so that they'll live on after you're dead and gone. You don't get to see the end of their story, which sounds sad until you realize that's the whole reason you had kids in the first place. Well, I don't have kids. What I have are the works I create and the works I get to contribute to, and I'm in- incredibly proud that one of them is going to be Star Trek Prodigy, even if my contribution is only in a small way and uh, in nowhere near the same level as say the, that of the writing staff or the artists. Uh, the fact that I got to be part of the team and have input and help shape it. Uh, that's something I'm going to be very proud of. That's awesome. That's good to hear. Well, I'm, and I'm, you know, and you've contributed so much to Star Trek in your own works. And I'm just curious if you have anything new coming up. For Star Trek, I do, but, it hasn't been formally announced. Uh, I mean, I have a contract. The story's approved, but nobody's saying anything about it yet. No announcement has come out, so I shouldn't be the one to make the announcement. But there is more work on my plate coming from Star Trek in uh, 2021. Fear not. Um, beyond that, I just I have the consulting work. Um, I've got uh, an original idea that I'm tinkering with. I don't know if it will ever be purchased. I don't know if it'll ever find a home, uh, but that'll be a science fiction idea if it ever comes together and gets published. I have a couple short stories I'm working on for upcoming anthologies, one by Robert Greenberger, the other by Keith DeCandido, both of whom are well-known Star Trek tie-in veterans. Um, so that's what I've got going on. I got a couple short stories in the hopper. I got a Trek novel coming out next year and I got an original that I'm tinkering with. Awesome. So one last thing uh, to say about this novel, if anybody's listening who hasn't read it yet, I highly recommend going and picking it up. I think it's a, a really great peek into this corner of Star Trek that really, you know, not a lot has been done in it outside of, you know, three films, a whole bunch of comics and these two novels and some uh, young adult novels too, that I just forgot about, but, and some games, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's really cool. I think it's a great addition to that universe and to Star Trek as a whole. So definitely go pick it out. If pick it up, if you haven't yet, very kind of you to say, and also the third book of the dark arts trilogy came out on the same day. Go get that as well. <laughs> yes, please pick up the Shadow Commission. And if you haven't tried out the Dark Arts series, if you're the kind of person who likes to wait for a whole series to be out before you buy and read the books, well, now is the time to pick up the Dark Arts series, all three books, The Midnight Front, The Iron Codex, and The Shadow Commission. The series is done. Tor is not going to be buying any more of them from me. So three is what there's going to be. Three is what there is. They're all out. Go get them. Yes. Now, there are there audiobook versions of those? Because some people like audiobooks. Yes, there are digital audiobooks available of all three titles. The first two were produced by Macmillan Digital Audio. The third is produced by Tantor. All are available through Audible. All of them are available uh, in one format or another through most of your favorite retailers. The books are also available in trade paperback and in 
digital ebook formats uh, of all kinds. Excellent. Excellent. And if people want to find you online, where can they find you? They should find me at my website, davidmack.pro, P-R-O. From there, you'll find links to my social media pages on Facebook and the Twitter. Uh, but you can find everything you need at davidmack.pro, including news about my new and upcoming books and other fun stuff like public appearances. Not that I have any, because they've all been canceled this year for the reason due to the pandemic. Mm, yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, to everyone listening, I will have that link in the show notes because that is something that we have control of now. So. Oh, look at that. Dan's in control now. <laughs> wow. Don't go, don't get thrown on the power there, man. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, David. I also enjoyed the book. It, it really did feel like the movies. It was different, you know, from your other writings. But That was the goal. Yeah. That was what I was shooting for. I didn't want it to feel like my other books. I wanted it to feel like a new thing that fit with the universe it was based well, on. Well, it was fun. And, glad, and it sounds like it worked like that for you, and I'm glad. Yes, it definitely did. Well, thank you for joining us, and thanks for everyone for listening here to Positively Trek. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex and Dan. You can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats, and you can discuss this episode in the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. There you go, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Uh, stay positive, everyone. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.